We all spend our days going to work, paying bills, planning family vacations, buying new video games, joining up with friends for a few drinks to blow off steam, or just enjoying a quiet night at home reading a book or watching Netflix. But what if you didn't have these options? What if, instead, you spent your days locked up in a dirty hotel room being forced to perform sexual acts all day? What if you lived in a world where you had no house, no money, no access to medical care, and couldn't even choose what you wore each day? What if you simply weren't allowed to say no, and a group of men controlled your day-to-day -day life? That's the horrific reality for victims of human trafficking. And that is what we're diving into today. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing, Missing, Hidden, the podcast about bad things. That will ring very true in today's episode. I am your host, Brad, a former criminal defense attorney. And um, let, let's, you know, let's just sit down and talk for a moment here, okay? This is a heavy episode. This is a very heavy episode, and it's got lots of potential triggers in it. This is not an episode for children at all. If, you know, things like sexual abuse, rape, self-harm, domestic violence, torture, brutality are all hard for you to listen to, you may want to skip this episode. Honestly, we may touch on just about anything that could be considered a trigger. So please exercise great discretion on whether or not this is something you want to learn about because we are going deep into the life of a human trafficking victim. And we aren't going to shy away from the ugly details, okay? Now, of course, y'all know me. I'm not going to sensationalize this. I'm not going to get down and dirty in the muck. But I don't think this story can be told without discussing these horrible things. I don't think it's fair to tell the story without discussing these horrible things. People should be aware of how awful a crime this truly is, and it's one that we just never hear about. Murders we hear about, you know, pedophiles we hear about, things like that. But honestly, human trafficking is something that just tends to travel under our radar. And, you know, that's why I picked this episode. That's why I picked this topic. I know it's not one that's going to earn us millions of listens, but I think it's one that's very important for people to hear. Again, if it's going to cause you problems, do not listen to this. But if you're interested in learning about this world, we're going to educate you on it. And you're going to get a mini master's degree on how horrible it is to be a victim of this process. Now, the best I could do, in my opinion, in bringing this to you was to find one victim and tell their story. And so I've relied on a book called Please Let Me Go by Caitlin Spencer. It's pretty much our primary resource for this episode. If you want to read the book, of course, I've got it linked in our show notes because I'm not covering everything in there. There are some things that are 
I deem too horrific to share for this episode. There's repeated instances of certain types of abuse where I just mention it in a one-off setting. But if you want to read her whole story, and it's it's very much worth reading, in my opinion. If again, I understand this is very difficult for some people, but if you can handle it, I think the book is very eye-opening and will teach you a lot about this subject. Now, of course, note that Caitlin Spencer is not our victim's true name. That's the pseudonym she goes by. All the names, all the locations, kind of even the series of events that occurred here in her story that we're going to talk about have been changed in an effort to maximize the protection of her identity. So um, this is not something we could research independently. We're taking this from Caitlin's mouth. And from what little I know about the subject from having dealt with it professionally, everything she says in her book tends to ring true. So I feel comfortable relying just on her story. Now, again, we're about to start. Uh, so emerging caution and just prepare yourself for some terrible truths. I hope, though, ultimately the result of this episode is people learn this awful reality and learn some clues on how to spot it going on and are able to help law enforcement save these people. So let's, let's jump in, shall we? Now we're going to do something a little bit rare for Killing, Missing, Hidden. We're going to start our story at the beginning, or Caitlin's story, to be fair. Um, Caitlin grew up in England and had a pretty normal life. You know, she was a tomboy. She adored animals, just tried to have fun whenever she could. She grew up in what sounds like kind of an economically depressed town. And there was some crime, you know, lots of petty things thefts, a few robberies, things like that that would go down. So her parents were concerned and decided that they needed to get better jobs so they could move out of this town. And they did when Caitlin was 14. They moved uh, in an effort to protect Caitlin and her little brother. And it's ironic that that move is what would kind of be the catalyst in starting this entire saga. So after the family moved, it was during the school year, and they ran into a slight logistical problem. The local school that Caitlin was to attend was full, and she couldn't start classes there immediately. She was going to have to wait about six months for the new school year to begin, you know, unless the kid dropped out or something like that happened. And so Caitlin found herself alone. You know, her parents' new job required them to work 12-hour shifts all day. Her brother got into the school he was supposed to go to. So she was literally 14 years old, stuck at home all day with nothing to do. She had no friends she could go visit because she didn't have an opportunity to make any friends. She wasn't in school. She had left all her old friends behind. And, you know, of course, they're not close enough where she could just walk down and see him. And so she was left to her own devices a lot, which meant, you know, as a teenager, and this is back before the Internet and all that good stuff, of course, uh, she was just bored. She spent a lot of time being bored. And so in a noble effort to avoid being bored all day, Caitlin tried to find a job. 
And, you know, I mean, of course, she's not looking for a career. She just wants something to where she could go to work two or three days a week, pass the time mainly, making a few extra bucks or a few extra pounds, I guess, um, was a nice side benefit. But it was really just to cure her boredom. So she took the newspaper and went through and circled all the jobs that she felt like she could do. You know, cashier, uh, there's assistant to a doll groomer position, you know, just anything that would be an entry level job that we would think of. You wouldn't need, you know, any special training, any experience or whatnot. And so she called all these places, yet she was consistently turned down, as you probably would expect. You know, she was 14. She had no real work experience. And if you're running a business, do you want to take a chance on someone like that? It made Caitlin really frustrated, though, so she went back through the paper and decided to broaden her search a bit more and find jobs that she would like to do, but she probably wasn't qualified for, or maybe jobs that she didn't require any experience, but she wasn't wild about doing. And she called all of them up, and again, it was the same deal. You know, She was too young. She didn't have any experience. They didn't want to take a chance on her. So now she's frustrated and she's getting somewhat angry and she decides to do a third sweep of the paper and found that there was only one position left that she hadn't called about. All the others, you know, you clearly needed lots of experience or a college degree or something like that. But there was one job left where conceivably she would have a chance of being employed. And it was a very simple job ad. It essentially just read models wanted. No experience required. Caitlin, you know, like most teenagers, didn't really consider herself to be a beautiful person. She wasn't a model as she thought of it, but she's, you know, maybe I could, you know, be a hand model. Maybe I could, you know, just wear boots or something. You know, just anything to kill some time to make some money. Plus, you know, being a teenage girl, the idea of being able to say that you've worked as a model was pretty exciting to her. So she gathered up the courage and she called the phone number. Now, of course, Caitlin looks back and wishes somebody would have offered, offered her an opportunity just to, you know, sweep up a store or wash dishes in a restaurant, just even if it was just one or two days a week, because that would have given her what she needed. She would have kept busy. She would have had honest work, and it would have passed some time, and she wouldn't have had to make this phone call. When she called, the phone rang, and it was quickly answered by a man named Gordon. He gave Caitlin kind of this quick interview over the phone, but to Caitlin's amazement, he wasn't really put off by the fact that she had no experience and she was only 14. And, you know, in honesty, she was looking for a job that would only last for six months max. But he could work with all that. In fact, he said that he was in dire need of someone around her age for a catalog shoot that was set to take place in a couple of days. And the person he had in mind had dropped out. So he said, look, I know this is fast, but can I come over to your house and we can talk about it and I can take some pictures to take back to this catalog people to see if they would be willing to accept you. And I mean, of course, Caitlin's over the moon at this. She says, yes, absolutely. Come on over. Here's my address. I can't wait to meet you. You know, as soon as she hung up though, she began to panic. 
as a 14-year-old would because she was a tomboy. She wasn't some fashionista. She didn't know how to fix her hair properly or really put on makeup. I mean, she didn't even own any dresses or skirts. What was what was Gordon going to think when he showed up and saw this awkward-looking kid who really didn't even know how to make herself look pretty? But before she could become too anxious, someone knocked on the front door. Gordon. He had sped over like he promised to meet her. Caitlin nervously opened up the door, but was relieved when she saw Gordon because, you know, he was in his 30s. He was well-dressed. He was well-groomed. He was kind of easy on the eyes. You know, he was a tall, kind of muscular-looking dude, was very polite, and he had just this confidence about him that she found attractive. You know, she, Gordon was a a true professional in a 14-year-old's mind. Like, this is what you would expect to see if you walked into a modeling agency. You know, this, this was the guy that would be there running the show. So she invited Gordon in, and he took a seat on the sofa. And he looked a bit tense, and Caitlin asked, you know, is everything okay? Is something wrong? Did I do something wrong? And he said, no, look, I'm so sorry, but as I was gathering my things to come over here, I got a phone call, and because we were short on models for the catalog shoot, they've decided to call it off. It's not going to happen this weekend. You know, Caitlin was disappointed, but she really wasn't surprised. This was a long shot anyway, right? But, you know, Gordon was nice. He had at least been willing to give her a chance. So, you know, she stood up and she said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I wasted your time, but thank you for coming over and started to show him to the door. And he said, wait, wait, I'm still interested in adding you to our agency. You know, it's just that the shoot this weekend isn't going to happen. But, you know, he said, modeling's an odd business, you know, shoots, would be put together in a blink of an eye and they would fall apart in the blink of an eye. And so this was really normal. But if she was really seriously interested in pursuing this, he would love to take her on. And the first steps they needed to do anyway was she needed to have some sort of portfolio that he could take to prospective employers on her behalf. That way he could show Caitlin off and they could make a decision whether or not she was appropriate for the gig. This just overjoyed Caitlin. You know, she wasn't being tossed aside. She wasn't being told she didn't have enough experience or whatnot. She just had to kind of roll with the punches. And that made sense to her. You know, it's, of course, this is a fashion artistry type industry. Things could fall apart. You're dealing with divas. You know, there'd be complications. And of course, too, it made sense that if Gordon was going to help her get modeling gigs, he needed to have some pictures of her. Otherwise, what? how could he sell her? She was excited. She said, yeah, okay, that, let's do this. Let's, take, let's do the pictures. And Gordon said, you know, there's lots of different types of models. And he kind of explained the industry to her. And he said, you know, at your age and with your looks, I think personally that you would be easiest to sell as a glamour model. Well, her heart absolutely skipped a beat when she heard this. I mean, glamour modeling. I mean, she didn't know what glamour modeling was, of course, but she knew it had to be something glamorous, right? I mean, it's there in the name. She wasn't just going to be this random hand in a catalog showing off a ring or, or you know, wearing boots where you, you could only see from her knee down. This, this was going to be glamour modeling. I mean, wait until her family heard about this. Wait until she could tell her friends about this. 
But there was a minor problem that Gordon brought out pretty quickly. Glamour models needed to be at least 18, and Caitlin was only 14. And that's when our heart dropped. Because, you know, age is one of those things you can't just fix overnight. You are what you are. She was just too young. But Gordon had a workaround if she was down with it. All she had to do is fill out the paperwork saying that she was 18. He said, look, no one really checks into these things. And, you know, these days it's nearly impossible to tell a 14-year-old from an 18-year-old. So if that doesn't bother you, we can move forward. And, of course, Caitlin said, yeah, no, that's, that's cool. I absolutely will do that. And, you know, she thought, you know, when the makeup artist got a hold of her, when the hairstylist got a hold of her, when, the, when she got dressed up in all these outfits and whatnot, that would make her look 18 easily. So, yeah, it wouldn't be a problem. And so Gordon said, all right, well, let's do the photo shoot first, and then we'll take care of the paperwork afterwards. And she's like, sure. So he produced what, you know, she believed to be a, you know, professional-looking camera and setup and stuff. And they started taking pictures of her just sitting on the sofa. And they were just going through what she considered to be normal shots, you know, from the front, from the side. You know, he was doing it at different angles and all that. And he was instructing her throughout this impromptu shoot. You know, it's like, hey, close the curtains, lower the shoulders, sit on your knees. Just simple commands, all of which she obeyed willingly. None of which contained a please or a thank you from Gordon. But that didn't strike her as odd at the time. You know, he was a busy man. This is probably just how it, it worked. And Gordon soon kind of got frustrated. He said the lighting just wasn't right down here. The background was no good. And he pondered for a minute and he said, do you think we could do this in your bedroom? And again, she panicked because her bedroom looked like a child's bedroom and she didn't want Gordon to see a child's bedroom. And so she said, no, no, it's, it's really messy. Um, you know, I'd have to clean it up, but we, we can go in my parents' room. It looks nice. And Gordon said, okay, that'll work. So they go up to her parents' bedroom and Gordon's again, you know, telling her how to stand, what to do, just barking orders and Caitlin's following them. And then, you know, while he's taking pictures, while he's behind the camera, Gordon says, all right, now take your top off. Her top off? Why, why would he need pictures of her without her shirt on? You know, this confused Caitlin, but this was also a golden opportunity and she didn't want to screw it up by seeming to be uncooperative. So she kind of took her top off. And, you know, she felt really awkward and scared, but she kept taking the pictures. And it was while, you know, these pictures were being taken, she was like, wait, this, this is weird. I'm in, I'm in my parents' bedroom alone with this grown adult. Now he's got pictures of me, bad pictures on, on my own parents' bed. She kind of started to get to freeze. She got rigid, you know, during the photo shoots. And Gordon was trying to calm her down and say, look, this is, this is just what we do. This is, we have to have a wide selection of pictures and, you know, depending on the client's needs. Then he dug into his bag and threw something and hit her in the face. And it was a pair of stockings. And he said, go put these on. And so Caitlin went into her parents' bathroom and looked at him and she had never seen stockings like this. She didn't know what they were supposed to look like or how to even put them on, really. And so she puzzled it out in the bathroom and then walked out. And 
she's you know topless wearing these stockings and some shorts and she just felt totally ridiculous she's you know nothing looked good about this this is not something a model would wear but you know gordon said no honestly i know you don't understand but i've been in this business a long time i understand some people are going to like this and so she said okay and took some more pictures. He kept giving commands. She kept following him. He said, okay, good, good. We're doing real good. Now I need you to take everything off. And of course that stopped her in her tracks, you know, everything. She, he couldn't be serious. I mean, what left did she have to take off? And, you know, Gordon again noticed that she froze and he said, look, again, this is normal. I know it's not normal for you. It's normal for me. If, potential employers come in and they want to see certain things, we've got to have pictures for it. And so, yes, this is like way more risque than what the average person is used to, but every model has risque photos in there. And it's going to help sell people on the idea that you really are 18 and not 14. And so Caitlin was like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense, you know, to her 14 year old brain. And she did as she was told, you know, she got naked. And then all of a sudden, her front door opened and slammed shut. Her little brother was home. He had come home from school earlier than normal for whatever reason. And she could hear him bounding up the stairs. And she ran over and she slammed the bedroom door shut. And she said, don't come in, don't come in. I've just taken a shower. And of course, being a little brother, he says something like, why would I want to see you anyway? You're gross. Go away. And, you know, she could hear him run into his room and he was messing around and all that. And uh, she kind of sighed because her little brother was distracted. And she turned back around and she knew like this had to be the end because I couldn't continue with her brother in the house. Except when she turned back around, Gordon was getting undressed. He wasn't wearing pants. He was taking off his shirt. And she just stood there stunned. She was 14. She had never seen a naked man before. And Gordon didn't miss a beat. He just kept on undressing. And she goes, you know, in a whispered kind of hush, like, what? What are you doing? Stop it. You have to go now. My brother's here. And Gordon kind of gave her the smug smile and said, you better be quiet, girl, or I'll make sure your brother knows I'm here. I'll show your mom the pictures we took. Now, you just shut up and do as I say. And of course, Caitlin's 14-year-old brain didn't know how to respond to this. She couldn't disappoint her parents. She would get in so much trouble for having done all this, you know? And she didn't have the means or ability to force this grown man out of her house, right? And what would the neighbors think if they saw this dude leaving her house with a camera and he was half naked and she just froze? Her brain kind of shut down. It overloaded you know she she was in a bad position and then it happened gordon raped her on her parents bed he didn't use a condom he didn't bother trying to be careful at one point he even laughed during it and said hey you really are a virgin aren't you caitlin kind of dissociated she knew that she was in pain and that none of this was right but Instead, she focused on things like, I've got to be quiet so my brother doesn't hear. And how am I going to clean this up? I, I, I don't know how to deal with that. You know, how, 
She was focused on doing everything she could to hide evidence that Gordon was there. She was focused on anything, of course, but what was actually going on. When he got done, Gordon got dressed pretty quick. And he turned to Caitlin and he said, look, you don't tell anyone what we've done, all right? You don't want your family to know what kind of a slut you are. You wouldn't want your family to know that you just let some random stranger into your house to take pictures of you naked, would you? And of course, Caitlin's like, Gordon, please, please, you cannot show anyone those pictures. But he just laughed. He reached into his wallet and threw a 10-pound note at her and said, use this to buy some better underwear for next time. Next time? Next time? What'd that mean next time? There's already a next time planned? Gordon walked up to her as she stood there stunned and naked and kissed her on the cheek and let himself out. And as he was walking out of the bedroom door, he said, I'll be in touch. Kate and kind of numbly walked into her parents' bedroom and drew a bath. She, she wanted to make herself feel clean after this experience, but the water just ran. She laid down on the floor and just felt the coolness of the tiles underneath her. The cold kind of helped numb her, even though she was filled with pain. It wasn't the physical pain that was bothering her. It was the embarrassment she couldn't dull. The shame. She felt like this dirty, filthy animal. Eventually, she got up and climbed into the shower and washed herself and began to get out. She said, no, I'm not, I'm not clean enough. And so she took another one. And then did it again. And she just felt like she couldn't get Gordon's scent off of her, no matter what she did. When she was done, she got dressed into what she was wearing before he came. And uh, she walked into a room and just kind of collapsed on her bed. And she stayed there, literally for days. And her parents were just too busy to notice her sudden personality shift. You know, her brother was too young to really put it together, too. And she started spiraling down into this deep depression. She became so numb that she really wasn't surprised when she received a phone call from Gordon a few days later. And the phone call was short. He just said, get yourself ready. I'll be there in 10 minutes. And kind of like a zombie, you know, Caitlin went downstairs just to wait. 10 minutes later, Gordon was there. You know, she was wearing jeans and a loose fitting jumper. He looked her up and down and uh, pulled out a bag and gave it to her and said, you know, these are the clothes you're going to wear. Go ahead and change. And the clothes, of course, were horribly inappropriate for a teenage girl. It was a short, tight skirt with these slits cut up the side and this, you know, really tight midriff top that was designed to accentuate what curves she had developed. And Gordon said, go get the underwear that you bought. She said, I... I haven't left the house since I last saw you. And he began cursing at her and was annoyed and said, well, then I guess you're wearing nothing then. Come on. And, you know, the skirt didn't hide that fact. You could plainly tell from the slits that there was no underwear underneath. He made Caitlin get in her car, and she said nothing as they traveled. They were in the car for, together for about an hour before they reached their destination. And they pulled into this quiet-looking neighborhood. And Caitlin noticed something kind of odd about it. It was a neighborhood where everybody was of Asian descent. 
you know, literally her and Gordon were the only two white people there that she could see. And, you know, that scared her. It made her feel even more isolated. So they pull into just what to her seemed like a random driveway. Gordon told her to get out of the car. But, you know, Caitlin was scared and she was kind of shaking. She didn't want to do any more pictures. Why, why did she have to take more pictures? You know, weren't the first ones good enough? And why would, you know, why, why does she have to wear these clothes in this picture? It didn't make any sense to her. So they walk into the house and they're greeted by this older Asian man. Caitlin estimated that he was probably in his 60s. He looked like a stereotypical grandfather. He and Gordon spoke for a few minutes before the grandpa handed Gordon just a wad of money. The grandpa smiled at Caitlin and then kind of directed her upstairs. Caitlin kind of looked at Gordon confused and Gordon like kind of gave her a shove on the back and said, when you're done, I'll be out in the car. And so Caitlin, as usual, did what she was told and she was led to a small room it was almost like a spare room of sorts. It was pretty bare. All it really had in it was a bed and a few things like that. And so the grandpa, you know, gestured for her to sit down on the bed, and she did. And then the grandpa kneeled down next to her and started rubbing his hands over her everywhere. Eventually, he began undressing her. Caitlin was just frozen. She was absolutely frozen in fear and in shame and in embarrassment. And then it happened again. Now, the old man was much more gentle than Gordon had been, but it didn't change what was going on. It didn't change the pain she was feeling in her mind, all the grossness and horribleness of having this wrinkly old man on top of her. They were in the room maybe 10 minutes. Grandfather got up and got dressed and opened up the door and showed her out. And her legs were like jelly. She could just barely walk. And, you know, she kind of more collapsed into Gordon's car than sat down. And Gordon didn't say anything. It didn't matter to him. You know, he had gotten paid for her work. He took her home and just essentially kicked her out of her, out of his car and, drove away and she kind of shuffled up the stairs to her room and again collapsed and she further withdrew from life. She spent almost all of her time alone in her room. She kind of stopped eating. She stopped going on weekend trips with her parents and inside she was a little bit mad because she knew she wasn't acting right, but her parents didn't seem to notice. They didn't see that her daughter, their daughter was changing before their eyes. A few days later, Caitlin was sent back to work by Gordon, another Asian man and another family home. But after this event, when Caitlin was back in Gordon's car, she tried to find her voice. You know, on the drive home, she said, Gordon, this isn't what I wanted. I wanted to be a model. I, I don't want to do this. You know, let's, this, we're done, okay? And he said, okay, fair enough. That's that's up to you. And she sighed with relief, probably the deepest sigh she had ever given in her young life. Gordon said, though, you know, but of course, I'm going to have to show these pictures to your mom. What? Why? Caitlin was blown away by this. What do you mean you have to show these pictures to my mom? And he said, you can't be a stupid girl. 
You can't, this can't be swept under the rug. You, you stopped helping me, so I'm not helping you anymore. And that was the moment when things really changed. You know, Caitlin cowered down again and ended up becoming a regular working girl. And Gordon changed too. He uh, started employing violence to keep her in line. You know, if he ever sensed any hesitation, any defiance, any doubt, he would have no problem hitting Caitlin. You know, she was there to make him money. Gordon would also stop by without warning whenever he thought Caitlin would be home alone and would just show up and say, we got to go meet another client. Come on. She never had any true mental relief. She was always on edge that Gordon could show up and would show up at any time. Eventually, you know, after several weeks of this, the threat of her mom seeing the picture stopped working. You know, she, she said she was done with this. She, she meant it. She wanted to quit. Gordon said, I've still got those pictures. Are you sure you want to do this? And she said, you know what? Bring over the pictures. I dare you. So um, Gordon changed tactics. When they got home on that car ride, he walked her up to her door and they went inside. And the moment they went inside, he thrust her down on the sofa and raped her right there in her own house. It was an effort to show how in control he was of her. Then after that, he started making her see multiple men a day, kind of as a punishment, but it was also profitable for him. You know, the more, more people she saw, the more money he got in his pocket. And the appointments started happening much more regularly. And Caitlin started to see repeat customers. She started to recognize these men. And she never understood why, but all of the men she saw were Asian. All of them. Never somebody of European descent, African descent, Hispanic descent, always Asian. It should go without saying, but just to make it clear to all, despite working multiple days a week and seeing so many men per week, and despite being considered a favorite among some of Gordon's regular customers, Caitlin never saw a dime of this money. All the money went to Gordon. All the work and pain and abuse went to Caitlin. Then one day, Caitlin snapped. She just absolutely snapped. She became this different person full of rage and anger. And she said, that's it. I'm done. There's nothing you can do to make me continue living this disgusting life. I'm out. And this, this conversation happened to take place at Gordon's house. And so he nodded his head kind of thoughtfully and then walked out of the room without saying anything. And then he came back in and he was holding a chain and not like a bicycle chain. She said this was a chain that an average man would have a hard time lifting. But, you know, Gordon was big and pretty muscular and he just picked it up and started whirling it above, your head, above his head. And then it came crashing down on her back and she instantly hit the floor and she rolled over to try to talk to him and it hit her again in her arm that hit her again in the ribs and then on the back and on the ribs and on the arm and just over and over and over she was beaten. And finally he was done and dropped the chain and walked over to where she was laying. And, you know, she was crying. She was having a hard time breathing. And he said, you do not get to decide. You do not get to choose when this ends. You do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. Got it? And he punctuated each statement with a fierce kick to her ribs. Told her to get in the car. He was done with her. 
and she kind of half crawled, half walked to the front seat of his car. And when got to her house, he came over, opened up the door, and just grabbed her by the shirt and pulled her out and left her there. Her parents were home. Her brother was home. But somehow she managed to sneak into the house and up to her room without anybody seeing her, even though she could barely walk. And after that, Gordon never again announced his visits. He would show up and take Caitlin whenever was a good time for him, you know, even if her brother was home. Again, this just made it even worse for Caitlin because, yeah, he had been kind of doing this, but he had also been giving some phone calls so she knew when it was coming. Now it was literally, truly any moment. And again, she just couldn't mentally rest. She, you know, every time she heard a car door slam, she jumped. Every time that a car drove by a little too slowly, she began to have a panic attack. You know, it was at this point, Caitlin said that she was truly starting to break down, like in a serious, serious fashion. And there was no one there to help her. She stopped fighting with Gordon. She learned that if she just went through the motions, she wouldn't get hurt by him, at least. And that's how she went through each day, just waiting to be drafted into some new despicable service. Eventually, Caitlin was admitted to school, and that helped things a little bit. It gave her some structure in her life, some routine, and she really needed that at this point. And she started to make friends. She started to try to live a normal life. She even volunteered at the local animal shelter on Saturdays. But Gordon was still around. He was always around. And even on days where he didn't need her talents, he would give her a call and just say, oh, I saw you driving, you know, riding your bike down such and such road. Or how was that muffin that you had for breakfast on your walk to school this morning? Things just to stay in her mind, to let her know that he was always watching her. He was always there. As much as Caitlin loved volunteering and working with the animals, she soon was kind of fired. The director of the shelter noticed that she would show up with odd bruises or a strange lip, and she could never answer the director's questions about how she got injured. The director was concerned that something was going on, but her parents poo-pooed the idea. And, you know, soon Gordon started calling on weekends, and she started missing shifts. And finally, the director said, I, you know, I got to have somebody I can rely on. You've missed, you know, four of the last five weeks. I... I I just can't put you on the schedule anymore. Caitlin was kind of okay with this in a way because she never had time to rest anymore. She never, she never had a chance for her body to heal. You know, she never got enough rest, it felt like. She never got enough sleep. She never could relax. And Gordon escalated the violence. I mean, even though she was being compliant, if she wasn't moving fast enough or if a client had anything negative to say, he would just beat the mess out of her. And he stepped up his threats, too. You know, he said, you know, you're going to go meet with these friends or I'm going to set your house on fire. You've got to meet these four guys today. And if you don't make them happy, I'm going to send some of my men over and they're going to kick the your brains out of your brother. You know, smash it open like a watermelon, I think is the words he used. Soon, Gordon stopped taking her to private houses. Um, she started working more in hotels and apartments and even buildings that were undergoing construction. Gordon also stopped picking Caitlin up for these meetings, but wouldn't just start sending taxis to get her. 
And she felt like these taxis were almost stalking her when she was out of her house. And it really wasn't uncommon for her to be walking home from the store or something like that for a taxi to pull up and say, Gordon said, get in. And they even got so bold that they would show up at dinner time and her mom or dad would answer the door and there'd be this, you know, stranger standing there. And he'd say, I'm here to pick up Caitlin. And what would her parents do? Caitlin, come downstairs. You've got a visitor. Yeah. So she would come downstairs and leave with the man. And apparently nobody in her family found this odd. Uh, One day, Caitlin was feeling particularly bad and forced Gordon to pull over while they were on the way to see a client. She got out of the car on her hands and knees and just threw up everywhere. Gordon was just livid. You know, she was always sick, always complaining about something being wrong. What was wrong with her? And he said, wait a minute, when was the last time you had your period? And she didn't know. She had stopped having a regular cycle once all this had begun, you know. And Gordon kind of cursed, got her back in the car, and drove her to a clinic. And Caitlin received some shocking news. She was pregnant. Gordon was furious and, of course, blamed it on Caitlin, even though she wasn't the one who wasn't putting condoms on. She wasn't the one who was making multiple men see her a day. But it was her fault. He took her home, and for a week she wasn't bothered, and she really just sat in her room crying, trying to absorb this massive, horrible bit of news that she had just received. Then out of the blue one day, Gordon texted her a simple text that just said outside. So she got dressed and walked outside, and he pulled up. She got in the car. And instead of going to a hotel or some construction site, they pulled up at a doctor's office. You know, Gordon told her to get out of the car. And as they were walking in, he said, we're getting this sorted out right now. And that day, Caitlin had her first abortion. She wasn't even 16 yet. Somehow Caitlin got home. She didn't remember how. But after this, she was left alone by Gordon for about a month. In fact, she was left alone by everybody in her life for about a month. Um, and at this point she, she turned to harming herself. She did it because she thought, you know, if she had all these scars over her legs or over her arms that clients wouldn't want her anymore, that she could kind of ugly herself up enough to be released. Then she kind of turned to throwing up whenever she felt like it. She would go to the store, buy, you know, a bag of candy or what have you, eat it all and then throw it up. And, you know, according to her book, she says this was the cutting and the throwing up. It was really the only time she felt like she had any control over her body. Eventually, the month dried up and she was put back to work again. Gordon became even more aggressive with setting up appointments. He even started doing it during school hours. So she'd have to leave in the middle of class. Her attendance became so poor that She was pulled from regular classes and put in what she called the naughty classes, where all they learned were just the core curriculum, you know, math, science, English, that sort of stuff. You know, Gordon would often just pick her up directly from school because a lot of the clients enjoyed the fact that she would come to their sessions wearing the school uniform. Gordon then started taking her to what he called parties. These were events where there'd be multiple girls, but many, many, many more men. And she would be taken to a room, 
and told that whoever came in, you had to make happy. And the rules were simple. You know, don't talk, don't resist, just be a nice girl. Caitlin was only just now turning 16 when she was taken to these parties. She was old enough to legally quit school, so she did. She didn't see a point to receiving an education. It wouldn't help her in any way to know the periodic table or to learn about Shakespeare. You know, all she had to do was lay on her back and spread her legs. With no school, that meant Caitlin had more free time for Gordon. That's, of course, not what she wanted, so... She decided now was the time to try to get some help, and she was desperate. But she didn't really know who to turn to or where to go. By this point, she was convinced her parents didn't care. They had seen enough that they should know that something was wrong, and they never breathed the word of it to Caitlin. She tried to go to the police, but she didn't have any evidence. It was just her story. Um, So she decided to be kind of sneaky, and she hooked up with one of her friends from her old neighborhood that she grew up in. And reconnected, and it was clear that Caitlin was a totally different person than she had been before she left. And the friend picked up on it and would ask her, you know, are you okay? Is What's going on? And Caitlin wouldn't really answer. But on about their third meeting, she said, you know, I keep a diary under my bed. And, um, boy, I put all my secrets into there. And I really hope my parents don't find it. Well, of course, the friend called Caitlin's mom and said, I'm worried about her. She keeps a diary under her bed while you look at it. And, you know, this was all Caitlin's plan, and it worked. It it went off without a hitch. A few days later, her mom caught Caitlin in the kitchen and said, you know, I was upstairs cleaning your room, and I found your diary. Caitlin didn't say anything, and her mom said, "I, I read it. And Caitlin had put details of everything she had been through there and there. So there was no question, there was no doubt about what she was experiencing. And Caitlin sighed with relief when her mom said that she had read it. She wasn't scared about getting in trouble. She was just looking for help from wherever it came from, whatever the price, whatever the consequence. But her mom said that and walked out of the room, and it was never brought up again. Now, to her credit, the next day, her mom came home at an unusual hour, much earlier than expected. And when she walked in, there was a stranger sitting on the sofa. He had been sent to collect Caitlin. And her mother looked at him and said, what are, what are you doing in my house alone with my daughter? And he couldn't really answer the question. And so her mom snapped and chased the man away and called the police. And the responding officer showed up and immediately recognized what was going on. But he didn't have any good news to give. He said, basically, look, we can't make an arrest without a complaining witness. Every time we do these cases... The girls always get scared and will will recant their statements or just disappear. They get threatened by the people. We can't offer the protection. And so there's really no point in fooling with this. And like that, the officer was gone. And the whole matter was swept under the family rug by her mom. Never mentioned again. Her parents decided that since Caitlin had quit school, she had chosen to become an adult and that she didn't need to live at home anymore. Her parents found her what was kind of described as a small apartment. It sounds like it was more of a hostile situation. You know, she had a little room, a little bed, and lived with all these other kids roughly her age or older. And, you know, she found herself truly alone in the world now. 
interestingly, Gordon kind of slowly began to fade out of her life, but that vacuum was quickly filled and it was filled by this kind of gang of men from Pakistan. Caitlin stopped seeing her regular Asian clients and now began servicing the Middle Eastern population in England. And to her utter shock and dismay, the conditions of life under the Pakistani group were so much worse than she could have ever imagined. Caitlin never just saw one man a day now, and she was never taken anywhere nice. She would be thrown in cheap hotel rooms, abandoned houses, dilapidated apartments. She was under constant watch. Whenever she was called to work, she was picked up and escorted by at least two large men until she entered her assigned room for the night. And she said the men that she was called upon to service were just awful, horrible people. They would bind her hands and whip her with belts, purposefully have the roughest sex possible. She said she got the impression that they wanted it to hurt. They enjoyed seeing her in pain. They also enjoyed abusing her emotionally. They would call her names, almost always racist names. They really fixated on her being white for some reason. So to them, she wasn't just a slut or a whore. She was a white slut or a white whore. And that, you know, had the she further felt isolated in this world. You know, the same effect of going to see uh, clients in all Japan or all Asian communities. And now she's in an environment where she's seeing only Middle Eastern men. She's, you know, she doesn't speak the language. She doesn't understand the culture. She doesn't even know what kind of food they're eating. You know, she's totally alone. The abuse she got from her new masters was basically the same as Gordon's. But the, the difference was it wasn't being done to control her. It was just being done for their amusement. And one thing they did different from Gordon was they really exerted their control through kind of force feeding her a bunch of alcohol and a bunch of drugs. So she was just too out of it to be able to fight in any way. And one particularly gruesome encounter, one of the men she was with noticed that Caitlin had scars on her arms and on her legs from the self-harm. And he became just unbelievably excited and said, do you cut yourself? And she kind of nodded yes. And he said, can, can I do that to you? And she just looked at him funny and he goes, I really, I would really like to cut you. And um, he wanted to do what was known as blood play. And she let it happen. She was too drunk and had been just beaten down too much to put up any resistance. She said she actually didn't really experience a lot of pain during this incident because she was used to cutting herself and she had gotten so good at disassociating, she would just focus on the carpet. That's what she had learned through what was now years of abuse. Just focus on the carpet, always the carpet. By the time she turned 17, Caitlin had been unsuccessful at three suicide attempts. She had also become known to the local police as just a prostitute, meaning they wouldn't really help her or even look her way. When she was in the hospital recovering from her suicide attempts, an officer would always be dispatched, but they would never believe her stories. She was just a prostitute to them. Another whore, a piece of white trash wasting their time. Caitlin also started having lots of health problems under her new bosses. She was just riddled with STDs. And of course, she couldn't receive the proper treatment form because of her demanding schedule. 
the men she saw now never used protection, and they didn't seem to care about the risk of catching a disease from her. When she was free of them, she would try to go to the doctor to get something to help with her problems. One time, a doctor told her that she had an extremely rare STD that he had only ever seen in Pakistan. He would need to do some research on how to treat it. But, you know, it didn't matter. Caitlin didn't care. It's not like she could come there and receive the treatments regularly. Even if she cured herself, they'd just, she'd be infected again. Her life wouldn't change. One of her primarily handlers was a man named Hassan. And he announced one day that he was going to be throwing a special party. He was having some friends from India show up. Of course, Caitlin would be invited. Now, this wasn't the first party she had been to, of course. And at previous events, Caitlin had kind of befriended another girl, a younger girl named Becca. Becca was very, very petite and really couldn't handle the lifestyle as well as Caitlin could. There was one sadly memorable evening where Caitlin and Becca were placed on a bed with a room full of men and they were taking their turns on the same bed. And Becca became crying because the pain was just too much for her to take. And since she started crying, the men got angry and started hitting her and abusing her. And Caitlin sat up and screamed at them, telling them to back off with some colorfully foul language that challenged their manhood. And that had the intended effect. Becca was left alone and Caitlin took the rest of the abuse for the night. Now for the special party, Caitlin was there and Becca was there and they were placed in the same bedroom with another girl named Haley, who was about Becca's size. And they just kind of waited. They could hear the men in the other room celebrating and drinking and doing whatever they were doing. And then Hassan busted into the room with the men behind them, and he made an announcement. It was a very, very special night, not because the men from India had arrived. No, it was a special night because Hassan had decided that the three girls were going to be servicing him that night. The men cheered like they had just won a soccer match. The girls huddled, scared for what was to come. Hassan marched upstairs like a king and had this procession of men behind him who carried the three girls upstairs like lambs to be sacrificed. He insisted they have a four-way, and the girls were required to enjoy it, or at least pretend like they enjoyed it. They spent hours in that room doing every act that Hassan demanded and doing it with a smile. This is how Hassan chose to celebrate with his friends from India, getting all the glory and all the attention. And there would be more parties, of course, and some of them would last for days. They usually took place in some cheap motel. Each girl would be assigned a room, and she would be forced to stay there and entertain any man who happened to walk through the door. None of the motel staff ever intervened, but they had to hear the screams, the cries, the laughter. A surprising number of these parties would occur close to local mosques. And the only time the girls got a break is when the men would stop to go pray. And then after praying, they would come back and continue raping the women and children that were being held as slaves. These parties always ended with Caitlin and the other girls in absolutely disgusting condition, essentially covered from mouth to thigh with the remains of all the men's they had serviced. They weren't allowed to clean up between men, so the reminders of each rape were left to serve as a foundation for the next reminder. I'm doing my best to keep this from sounding like a snuff film while still making sure everyone 
understands the full impact of what this poor girl suffered through. You know, so I hope you'll forgive me as we try to walk this difficult line. During another party, a man entered Caitlin's room with a black, what she described as a work bag. Caitlin was scared, but by this point, she had trained herself not to ever show any emotions. And she just stared ahead, again, like a zombie, and pretended not to be interested in anything. The man set the bag down in the corner, and he pulled out a drill. Then he yelled, and several other men came in the room. The other men held Caitlin down while the man put the drill next to Caitlin's knee. And he turned the drill on, and it bit into her skin. Then he pulled it out, and then he did it again, pulled it out, did it again, and pulled it out, did it again, and pulled it out. And every time, Caitlin would begin screaming, terrified that he was just going to destroy her knee for no reason. And finally, he said in English that he was just going to merely rape her today, and the drill would have to wait for another day. Caitlin said that this man, more than any other that she had been with, this man had hatred in his eyes. He loathed her. He, he wanted to destroy her. She was not human to him. She was closer to a demon, at least the way he looked at her. Another man raped Caitlin while holding a knife to her throat. The entire time, he promised he was going to kill her by cutting her throat and would bury her in the floorboards. And he'd get away with it, too, he claimed, because he was leaving for Pakistan in less than a week. But he never cut Caitlin. This was just part of his sick sexual fantasies. There was another man who held Caitlin down and poured something that looked like alcohol all over her private parts and then proceeded to rape her, but it wasn't alcohol. She didn't know what it was, but it was something that made it feel like her nerves were on fire. And he loved it. He was so happy while violating her. When he was done, she tried to clean it off as best she could. Unfortunately, it left no lasting marks or injuries that she was aware of. More and more, Caitlin was just being broken by this life. You know, her sense of hope had been smashed into rubble. She was completely helpless and completely at the savage's mercy. No one could help. No one could help her. She existed as a sexual object. That was her role in life now. Then a miracle happened. While she was at home in her terrible little apartment, her dad gave her a call. And he said, you know, I know you're having a rough time of things on your own, as if that isn't the understatement of the decade. But he said, I, I'm going to send you to Australia. I, I want you to take some time off from whatever you're going through. You're going to stay with my sister. She didn't even know that she had an aunt living in Australia. Part of the reason why her dad wanted to do this is her aunt was also a therapist. And though he never said it, Caitlin believed that her dad hoped this would kind of kickstart the healing process. Regardless, I mean, whoever her aunt was, Caitlin didn't care. She was excited. She was going to be away from these monsters for three months, maybe longer, maybe forever if she played her cards right. But sadly, Australia was not the dream vacation Caitlin had been hoping for. Her aunt, named Mary, was odd. And she and Caitlin did not get along at all. Caitlin even wrote that she thought Mary was the one who needed to see a counselor. And they rubbed each other the wrong way so often. And of course, Caitlin, by this point, she didn't, she didn't respond as a average person would. You know, she was very hostile in her responses. And she admits that. And in anger, her aunt would call 
her parents to report on her and say, oh, Caitlin's gone and got pregnant or Caitlin's emailing all these men. And none of it was true. She didn't get pregnant. She wasn't seeing men down there. That was the last thing she wanted. She also wasn't emailing anybody. She didn't have an email address at the time. Other than her aunt, Caitlin enjoyed her time in Australia because it was the first time she ever had any sort of freedom. And she used the freedom, but she didn't use it wisely. She didn't make the best of choices. She decided after the phone call about being pregnant that she was just going to go out and have fun. And to her, that meant she was going to become a sexual maniac. She was going to pick who she slept with. This is how she was going to exert control over her life. You know, sex was all she knew, but she could at least pick who she had sex with. And so she found as many partners as she could. And, you know, when they got in the bedroom, she would demand things of them. And she said, you know, looking back, of course, she said, this was such a stupid way to spend those three months, such a waste of time. Instead of trying to heal, instead of trying to get help, she just acted out. But by the same token, can you really blame her? I mean, no, that's not the best way to spend your time. But when you've been a caged animal all your life, when you're set free, are you expected to make wise decisions? The three months passed very quickly, and she soon found herself on a plane back to England. Within days of returning, she was walking down the street when a taxi pulled over and told her to get in. The driver, one of the regular at Hassan's parties, was excited to see her and began chatting with her as if they were old chums, you know, just catching up. She decided, you know, I had this opportunity in Australia to get help. I had an opportunity to get away from this all, and I didn't take advantage of it. So Caitlin convinced herself that she deserved the life she was now leading. When she got back into the party scene, she was greeted with more joyful violence. While raping her, a man threatened to pour acid over her face. Another threatened to pour acid down her throat. Uh, another man just forced her into a corner and merely kind of menaced her and threatened her with all sorts of horrible things until he was excited enough to rape her. After that particular encounter, she, she broke. She found herself lying on the floor, rocking back and forth at her apartment. She didn't know how she got home. But she was there at that crappy little apartment, shaking, you know, rocking back and forth, just saying over and over again, please let me go home. Please let me go home. Please let me go home. But she was home. I mean, her her door was unlocked. She could walk out the front door whenever she wanted, but it, it didn't it didn't matter. You know, she said it was like being a prisoner in a this giant prison all by herself, with every cell opened, every gate unlocked. She could have walked out at any time, but she just couldn't move towards freedom at all. By now the early two thousands were upon the world and the social side of the internet was becoming a thing. And Caitlin started using the internet as a means to escape her reality. She spent all of her free time online, particularly in chat rooms. And one day it clicked. You know, the internet could be a means of actual escape. So she began visiting Australian chat rooms and did her best to make friends with someone, anyone, who would pay for her to come visit them. She flirted with guys and eventually found one who became smitten with her. His name was Vernon. He wanted a real relationship with her, and, you know, she was more than willing to offer that if it meant getting a free ticket out of the hell she was living in. 
And it wasn't long before he sent her the money to buy a ticket to come visit him. She arrived back in Australia, and Vernon was waiting for her at the airport. He was still living with his mom, and he, you know he wasn't particularly handsome or whatever, but she didn't care. You know, she, the, his mom was just a lovely woman. She said, but she was old-fashioned, very strict. Vernon had his room, and Caitlin was expected to stay in the guest room. You know, there was no funny business that was going to go on in her house. And Caitlin liked the idea of that, but in reality, as soon as they went to bed, she would sneak up to Vernon's room and blow his mind. Um, because that's all she knew. That's the only way she knew how to show appreciation. The only way she knew how to make someone happy to say thank you. And within 48 hours, uh, having just spent two nights together, Vernon didn't want a relationship. He told her that he wanted to marry her, which isn't really what she wanted, in part because Vernon was an oddball. He, uh, The first thing he showed her when they got to his house off the airplane was uh, his shed in his mom's backyard. And his shed was basically a shrine to Nazism. He was really into Nazi stuff. He was down with the whole white power thing. And he was also very controlling over Caitlin, which, of course, by now she was an expert at identifying. So marriage wasn't really in the cards for her. But, you know, Caitlin tried to keep Vernon happy as much as she could to see if he could help her obtain some sort of visa. And it just turns out that one of his buddy's girlfriends knew an older couple who had some pretty powerful political connections. And Vernon thought that she may be the ticket to getting her a visa so he could or she could remain a permanent citizen in Australia and remain in Vernon's life. So uh, Caitlin was like, yes, let's meet her. Set up. Let's, let's do lunch right now. Right now. Let's do it. Uh, Vernon called her up. Uh, this young woman's name was Jody, And they had lunch together. And Jody explained that, look, it's really, really hard to get a visa. Okay. But these friends she had were very well connected. And if anybody could get her permission to stay in Australia, these folks could. So Jody was just kind of the middleman in this process. But it did lead to Caitlin meeting Harry and Gretchen. So a few days later, they you know went to lunch with Harry and Gretchen. And they were these just very sweet and warm people. And they looked like, again, stereotypical grandparents. They had been married for so long. They were gray-haired. They were very affectionate with each other. And they said, yeah, you know, we've been around a while. We know some people who've got some power. And we would love to help you out, Caitlin. But, you know, understand this isn't something where we can just snap our fingers. It's going to take some time. Uh, you know, getting a visa to stay in Australia permanently is challenging, but I'm confident we can make it happen. Well, if we can't, we'll at least do everything we can. And so, you know, again, Caitlin was overjoyed. So they made a plan and they're like, all right, well, the first thing you need to do is get employed somewhere so you can demonstrate our true intent to stay here and be a productive member of society. And Caitlin was all for it, except her visa didn't allow her to work. So she couldn't be legally employed. Well, that wasn't a problem. Harry and Gretchen owned several businesses. And they said, look, we'll make you a reception at one of our businesses. We'll put you on the books and everything. It'll look legit. And that'll be a great start. And so she was so excited. But the problem was the business was not close to where Vernon was living. And so they said, not a problem. 
the building this business is in used to be a hotel. And so it's got kind of a uh, caretaker's suite that's behind the reception desk. And I said, I mean, it's nothing. It's basically, there's enough room for a bed and a small kind of kitchen area, but it can be yours. You know, you can stay there. And that way you can, you won't be late for work, obviously. You'll have your own place and we can start building a life for you here in Australia. So hopefully when the paperwork goes through, you're ready to do what you want to do here down under. And of course, Caitlin was just overjoyed, absolutely overjoyed. And so she said, yes, yes, a million times. Yes. Thank you so much. And she moved in with Harry and Gretchen at their business. Caitlin packed up what she owned and excitedly left to start her new life. Vernon was upset, but he understood this was the only way that Caitlin had a real shot of staying in Australia and staying in his life. So she gets in a taxi and gives the driver the address of where she needs to go. And after riding in the cab for a while, he pulls up and stops and says, here you go. And the address was for a brothel. Yeah. Officially, it was called a massage parlor, but it was obvious what it was. And Caitlin was scared, but she said, no, this is my best chance to get out of this lifestyle. Let's just, let's give it a shot. So, you know, she walks in, Harry's there, he greets her warmly, and she expresses some hesitation about, you know, I thought I'd be a receptionist in an office or something like that. And he was like, no, this, you know, we run several businesses. This is one of them. And he said, but no, we're hiring you as your receptionist, honey. Don't, don't worry about it. All you have to do, schedule appointments, greet people when they walk in. That's all we're asking of you, honestly, honestly. And she was like, okay, okay. And, you know, she noticed that, this wasn't some run-down, beat-up place. It was very nice. There were very strict rules for the customers, and they all, in general, were very well-dressed, very well-groomed, very neat. So she decided, you know, okay, that's, that's fine. If this is where I have to start off, I'll start off here. Now, because Caitlin was forcing herself to be so optimistic, she missed a lot of little red flags that began popping up. You know, one day Harry came to her and said, you know, good news We've started the visa application process. He said, one of the things they want to confirm is that you're a English citizen, a British citizen. And so they need your passport. She said, no problem. And she goes to the copy machine and was like, no, they need the original so they can confirm that it's not a forgery or a fake. She said, oh, okay, well, here you go. A couple weeks later, Harry, you know, stops by and says, you know, uh, we're a little old fashioned. And, you know, we would prefer you not to play with your phone while you're at work. And she was like, well, that's not a problem. I'll, I'll leave it in my room. He was like, why don't, why don't we just put it up over here? I mean, you can use the phone anytime you want, but we'll keep it in my office just to keep it safe. And uh, just remind me, I'll get it to you. Uh, I'll, I'll get it back to you. And then when she started going on lunch breaks or going out to dinner, Harry would say, why don't you go with you know, this fellow or that fellow, you know, this is a really rough part of town. I don't, I worry about you. You don't, you're not from the area. You don't know where it's safe. Let him go with you. He'll keep you safe. If nothing else, you know, he can be your chauffeur. He can give you suggestions on where to eat, but most importantly, he'll keep you safe. And then a couple of weeks later, Harry came to her and said, you know, the, the visas, it's moving along. It really is. But, um, you know, it's not cheap to get a visa. And so, we're going to need a chunk of money from you to 
to proceed to the next step. And she said, well, Harry, I don't, I don't have that kind of money. He said, okay, well, I'll loan it to you. And then I'll just take a portion of your wages every week until you pay it back. And she was fine with that. You know, then a few weeks later, Henry came back and he said, I, I hate being this way and I'm sorry, but we are running a business and, you know, you living here, we love it, but, you know, the extra utilities, um, you know, they've gone up since you've come in the, the, and we're going to have to charge you some room and board. Not a lot, not a lot, but just something to offset what you're costing us. And he said, again, we'll just take it from your wages if that's okay. And she's like, yeah, I, I guess that's fine. Then soon Henry came to her and said, honey, you're not making enough money for us to offset what you owe us. And you need to figure out a way to make more money. And she knew what that meant. But, you know, she couldn't just jump into the role of a masseuse. You know, Henry and, and Gretchen insisted that she look the part, so... Gretchen took her out and bought her several nice dresses, bought her some makeup, had her hair done. She took some lessons in how to give a massage so at least she could, you know, give the appearance of knowing what she was doing. All of which, of course, cost money and all of which they just put on her tab. You know, at that moment, she realized how things worked. Being a receptionist, she had always just been in the front end of the building. But when a client would come in, they would be taken to the special room in the back and all the women would be called down and kind of paraded in front of the customer. And then he would select which ones interested him. And then he would be presented with a menu, a literal menu. And he would pick what service he was looking for. And then they would pair him up with whichever girls offered that service. Caitlin never saw the full menu, but she knew that, you know, just basic, Regular sex started at $300 an hour, and then there were add-ons from there. They offered all sorts of services. Fortunately, she was kind of just treated as one of the regular girls. She didn't have to do anything too outlandish. Now, the only way for this business to make money, Henry, Harry claimed, is to be open when customers would be coming about. So that meant the girls had to work pretty long hours basically from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. on weekdays, and then from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m. on weekends. If you can do the math, you can tell that's not enough time to really rest and recover. And so a lot of the girls would get really wore out really quick. And so to offset that, Harry would provide all the crystal meth he wanted. And that's how you kept your energy, is by doing drugs. Now, of course, I know this will shock you, but Every time you use crystal meth, Harry would add that onto your tab. When Harry became aware of Caitlin's tendency to self-harm, he got really angry. You know, Caitlin said that until she became one of the working girls, she had never seen Her Harry's anger. And he was a very, very mean dude. And so he found out about the self-harm, got angry, and he, with two of his, you know, muscle, um, marched into her room one day and forced her to strip so he could inspect her. And he literally did this every morning that she was there to make sure she was not harming herself. And if she, if he found a new cut, then he would charge her for that, you know, basically a penalty fee. Overall, though, Caitlin would say, you know, this was kind of one of the best places she ever um, worked, I guess. The clients 
were professional men. They generally were not very rough. Uh, in fact, she had several that would show up who just wanted to cuddle or just wanted to talk. You know, they had lost their wife or they were having trouble at work and they didn't want to have the stigma of going to see a psychiatrist or something like that. So they would use escort. After a few months of working there, an immigration officer came by and went through Harry's files and identified that Caitlin was working illegally. But Caitlin didn't know this at the time. She issued an immigration officer had come by and Harry sold this to her as, as part of your visa process, they're coming by to make sure you really work here. And we've got a meeting with them next week. And so Caitlin was excited. And they show up in the immigration officer's office and it's not at all what Caitlin thought. You know, this officer's talking about Caitlin, you know, has no legitimate reason to be here. She's overstayed her visa. We're going to have to deport her. And Caitlin wasn't allowed to talk during this meeting. Harry did all the talking. It didn't go well. And the meeting ended with the immigration officer telling Henry that, I don't care what you say. Next week, we're putting this girl on a plane back to England. There was one thing Harry had not lied about. He actually did know several powerful people in Australia. And he was able to get this whole deportation issue sorted out. But because of the extra work he had to put in and legal fees and things like that, you know, it really increased Caitlin's tab that she would have to work off. Eventually, Caitlin said, I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, even good sexual slavery is still sexual slavery, right? So at lunch one day, she managed to kind of Sneak. She went to the bathroom, she was telling the, her escort, instead used the phone, called her mom and said, Mom, I'm, I'm here in Australia. I'm stuck. I can't get out. This guy's basically holding me. Will you call him and ask him or tell him that you want the family home for Christmas? And since he holds himself out as a respectable businessman, he won't be able to say no and I'll get to come home. And amazingly, at this point, I say amazingly, uh, her mom did it. As predicted, you know, Henry found himself in an awkward position because he couldn't say, no, she's my property without, you know, a bunch of red flags going up. So he reluctantly agreed on the condition that Caitlin return after New Year's. And he said that, but Harry knew Caitlin wasn't coming back. Caitlin knew Caitlin wasn't coming back. But Harry took her to the airport just the same. And they both put up this charade that she'd be back to continue working off her debt, which he claimed was over 30,000 pounds. And, you know, when she departed, Harry, as I guess a parting gift, said, look, if you uh, know any girls who may be interested in working for us, I'll pay you a finder's fee. Upon returning home to England and being allowed to live at home again, Caitlin celebrated by drinking so much. She was admitted to the hospital with alcohol poisoning twice in her first week home. Again, parents acted like this was just normal Caitlin behavior for their now 20-year-old daughter. As you're no doubt expecting, it wasn't long before Caitlin was discovered by Hassan and his crew, and she was drugged back into slavery again. One new variable in the equation was a man named Zane. He had kind of become Hassan's lieutenant, and he was a particularly awful man. She returned to the apartments and the hotels and the other places she was typically forced to work. Her first time with Zane, he 
raped her, and she said it was one of the worst experiences of her life. Zane and a friend took Caitlin to her room, then took Caitlin at the same time with Zane coming in from behind. This was the first time she had ever been anally raped, and Caitlin remembered that she thought she couldn't be broken anymore, but being anally raped broke a new part of her soul. Plus, she suffered physically from it. She led for days afterwards, but of course, she wasn't allowed to go see a doctor. Caitlin continued seeing Zane more and more often and eventually deduced that Zane was now her new pimp. She had been sold again. And Zane required all of his women to perform anal sex. In fact, 90% of her encounters with men now were uh, anal sex. And this was just too much for Caitlin. She couldn't, she couldn't handle this. So she looked for her typical escape route. She returned to Australia. In her book, Caitlin says she doesn't remember how she raised the funds to get back to Australia. She suspects it was through chat rooms. But that time under Zane was kind of a blur. When she made it to Australia, she was offered a room with a couple named Don and Claire. So we have Caitlin again, just blindingly trusting total strangers. However, Don and Claire were actually a lovely couple who really never did say anything or do anything inappropriate. They were very nice. Um, she said the worst experience she had was that Don commented on how pretty she was and how large her chest was but otherwise perfectly suitable hosts, you know, totally happy to host a stranger from the UK. Again, she's in a totally safe environment. She's there for three months. And again, she just couldn't formulate any sort of plan for the future. She spent a lot of this time though, sleeping and resting and trying to mentally recover. Certainly she needed it. I mean, her body needed it. Her brain needed it. Her emotions needed it. And so it was good from that aspect. But, you know, soon it dawned on her that she was only a few days before she had to fly back home to England. And she wasn't looking forward to that at all. So she decided to go out partying. And she went to several bars and she met a dude who she found, you know, to be pretty handsome. And she decided that she would spend the night with him. That experience struck her as odd because she said it was... It was the closest she had ever come to making love rather than having sex. He was very gentle with her. He tried to do things to please her. And she was just very surprised at the whole experience. You know, there, there was no effort to control at all by either of them. Like she didn't, this wasn't like her first time in Australia where she, where she wanted to be in control of the bedroom and all that. It was just, they were trying to make each other happy. And she had never experienced that. She returned to England a few days later. And, of course, was instantly found by Zane and put back in his harem. But within a few weeks, she became really, really ill, and she was scared. This is about the time that, I think, the book said SARS was kind of, you know, the big talking point in the world at the time. And, and she was worried that she had caught it. And so she went to a local clinic, and they couldn't find anything wrong with her. But in doing their tests, they learned that she was pregnant. But this time, Caitlin, Caitlin was excited because... This baby was not the product of rape. This was a baby who was the product of someone she had kind of made love with. It was the first time in years she really, truly had something to look forward to. She had undergone three abortions at this point in her life, and so this would be her first real pregnancy. Now, Caitlin didn't show. Um, she continued having to work, 
And it really wasn't until she hit her eighth month that she developed a belly. And at that month, she was just totally ignored by Zane. She was, you know, never picked up by taxis. She never forced to work. Apparently, a pregnant woman was just not in high demand with Zane's customers. So she spent the time at home and then went and gave birth to her little girl, who she named Amy. And she was so excited and she was so filled with joy. She had something that was just hers in her life. I mean, since the age she was 14, she hadn't had anything that she could call her own, you know, and now she had a baby. She had someone to take care of who loved her and would, you know, depend on her. And then the midwife who assisted made a comment that just shattered Caitlin's world. She noted that Amy appeared to be mixed race. It wasn't from her one night stand in Australia. Amy was conceived through rape. And it was obvious she had darker skin, darker hair. She just, she looked like she had um, Middle Eastern or Oriental or Asian blood in her. And so instantly Amy went from being this bundle of joy to a constant reminder of how awful Caitlin's life was. She really had problems bonding with Amy. She knew she was supposed to love her and she did love her and she knew she was beautiful. But just every time she looked at her, it made her stomach churn. Now, fortunately, Caitlin's dad was over the moon. He was so excited to be a grandfather that he did a bunch of the heavy lifting. Like he would get up with her at night and give her the bottle. He went out and bought her clothes, all, you know, everything that she would need. Mom was not happy with the situation, but it didn't matter. Dad was really happy. Caitlin did the best she could, but she really felt like this beautiful little girl was nothing more than a brick tied to her feet as she struggled to keep herself together and above water mentally. Not long after Amy was born, Caitlin was collected again. She was sent back to Zane, and the men Zane found for her were just bizarre. What they wanted and what they requested were just really out there. For example, one man brought his family to the encounter. I mean, they weren't in the bedroom with them, but they were set in the living room while he raped Caitlin. Several men gave Caitlin their cell phones, and they had dialed their wives, and they told her to talk to their wives while they raped Caitlin. And if she was quiet for too long, they'd get angry and start hurting her. And she didn't know what to say. I mean, it's hard. She was in a state where it was hard enough just to breathe while she was being raped, much less make conversation with a stranger. Uh, Another man brought his 16-year-old son and gave him Caitlin for the night as a birthday present. When the son finished, the father took his turn. Uh, Another man, another man brought a dildo that was so large that when he forced it inside of her, she could feel and hear tissue tearing. Another guy purposefully Ainley raped her so aggressively and so hard that she bled a tremendous amount of blood over the next few days and, and couldn't, couldn't even sit down. Um, she had to always lay on her side because the pain on her backside was just too much. Probably the most disturbing incident of them all, a man paid extra so he could rape Caitlin at his house. When she was delivered there, the man led Caitlin to his daughter's room and raped her there on his daughter's bed. And during the course of the rape, he laughed and commented that Caitlin was so much better at this than his daughter was. 
uh, you know, after she had come back from the birth of Amy, this abuse obviously just continued to ramp up. Caitlin tried to seek out help on her own. There were lots of clinics in the area that offered free therapy, but she said it felt like every time she went to one, the therapist or the psychologist or the psychiatrist that was working there, she seemed like every one of them was either a Middle Eastern or an Asian man. And she just couldn't bring herself to open up about these experiences to someone that looked like could have been one of her former clients. You know, the few times she found someone she could talk to, she learned she had to be very careful about how she said things. She couldn't mention, you know, anything about self-harm. She couldn't talk about the abortions. She couldn't talk about, you know, overdosing on drugs or alcohol. And then Caitlin finally had an experience where she went to a, one of these clinics and went to see a psychologist. It was an Asian man, but she didn't care. She just went in there and, you know, he tried to chat with her as you do a, a new a new person and she just couldn't do it. And she, it's the floodgates opened and she just started going on and on and on about what she had been through. And he would try to interrupt to ask questions, but she would just talk over him and keep going. And it, it's, so, she said, you know, she remember it started, she just was talking about the carpet and she's obsessed with the carpet. She was describing it in detail. And then she slowly went from the carpet to talk about the rapes. She talked about, you know, when she was 15, there was this 55-year-old man who she had to stay with for a while because even though she was performing oral sex, she wasn't doing it the way that he wanted. And so it took multiple tries before she finally got it right. And she just went on and on and on in all this detail. And this, this psychologist kind of sat there quietly after a while and was taking notes and all that. You know, time ran out. He set up an appointment for her to come back in a week or something like that. So she left. But a couple of days later, she came back and she, she requested a copy of her, her file from him. She was real curious about his notes and what he thought was going on in the hopes that there would be something there to, that she could grasp onto to kind of start healing. But despite having been there for so long and despite him having taken so many notes, the only thing he had typed into her file was... Caitlin is currently working as an escort. That was it. Nothing else. So she got angry and she went back to some of the other people she had seen and got copies of her files there. And it was the same universally. None of them really seemed to grasp what she was saying. You know, it, the notes read things like vulnerable female, history of self-harm, slight anxiety, doesn't like crowds, puts herself in vulnerable positions. Low self-confidence takes responsibility for her actions. And Caitlin saw this and she said, screw it. Nobody's going to help me. So she stopped trying to go to these people. She stopped looking for mental health services. It wasn't long after she had tried to get help that it turns out she got pregnant by one of Zane's clients. Again, she was taken to get an abortion, but she had arrived at the doctor too late. She was too far along. And so she had to go to the British Pregnancy Advisory Service to have a quote-unquote traditional abortion performed, which meant she would basically it was a surgical procedure and somebody had to drive her there. And Zane wasn't willing to waste any of his resources to make this happen. He told her to figure it out, but get it done or there'd be trouble. So she asked her mom for the ride and 
Her mom was furious that she'd gotten pregnant again, just absolutely furious. And as the days got closer for her to actually have the procedure done, she was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore, Mom. I, I, I can't go through with it. And her mom said, no, you're, you're going through with this. We're not having another child in this house. It, it was almost as if she was on Zane's side. And so her mom basically drug her to the uh, office where the surgery was performed. And it was awful. Caitlin said it was just awful. She felt horrible. She was offered no sort of counseling either before or after the procedure. And all she could do was lay in bed because she was in so much pain. While she was recovering, uh, her mom offered no comfort whatsoever. In fact, her mom went through the house and threw away everything that Amy had outgrown just to send that message that, you know, don't keep these baby clothes. There's no reason to because you ain't having another child. One of the results of this incident was Caitlin learned to monitor her body better and became more adept at learning the signs of pregnancy. So she was able to take action much more quickly. She tried getting on birth control, but her body, every time she would take the pill, she'd throw it up. She tried doing the morning after pills. She couldn't do any form of uh, more permanent birth control because by this point in her life, she just couldn't have... She couldn't willingly agree to have a man near her private areas, and she was so terrified of needles from having been drugged so much that she couldn't get any sort of injections. She stayed with Zane for three more years after this. Out of nowhere, one day, a new man came into her life, a fellow by the name of Robin. By now, she had quickly figured out that Robin was her new pimp, you know, her new owner, but he had a much, much different approach to the business than she had ever experienced before. He ran a website. He ran a website. And this website had allowed men to kind of view the women that he had available, pick who they wanted, and pick a service that they offered and make an appointment. And this, you know, was set up to minimize the amount of time Robin had to spend worrying about logistics and maximize the amount of time he could spend making money. Basically, each day, Robin would pick up Caitlin and take her to some hotel somewhere in England. And these were usually nicer rooms. You know, it wasn't the motel she was accustomed to. And he kind of had an itinerary for the day. And so, you know, Robin or one of his men would escort Caitlin to a room and walk her in and say, okay, your first client is John and he's looking for this sexual act. And so she would wait there and then... You know, John would show up and she'd do the deed and then they would finish up and he would leave or the when the time was up, the telephone would ring. And that was the signal that John had to leave if he hadn't left. She'd answer the phone and Robin or the guy that was with her that day said, you know, next guy coming is Bill and he wants this. And that's how it would work every day. Now, Robin was a much nicer pimp than she was used to, to the extent that you can say a pimp is nice, I guess. Maybe just less monstrous is a better way to put it. He was the only one that would actually pay her, not consistently, but from time to time. In the past, you know, a lot of the men would throw her 10 pounds or something like that if they ripped her underwear or tore her shirt, you know, so she could buy a new one. But no, Robin, he would pay her several hundred pounds uh, when she had a particularly profitable day or week. Now, unfortunately, many of Robin's clients were sadists. They wanted to do something not for their personal pleasure, but 
They wanted to see Caitlin in pain. That's what turned them on. And a few would pay extra so that they could video the experience. In fact, Robin would even sometimes visit during one of her appointments and would videotape it and then would use that to advertise his website. And of course, he didn't advertise it as prostitution or, or sexual slavery. Bored housewives who are looking for men to please them or something like that. The website even allowed customers to rate their experience. So not only are they paying for the privilege of raping this poor girl, they would review Caitlin on how good she was at being raped. One particular client took a massive shine to Caitlin. His name was Stephen. And Stephen had a very particular fetish, pregnant women. So he negotiated a special deal with Robin. He would get Caitlin once a week. She would be brought to a hotel near his house. There were no nice hotels there, so it was kind of more the environment she was used to. And he would show up, and they would spend the afternoon together. It, in fairness, it wasn't, you know, four hours of her being raped. It's, he was somewhat nice to her, you know, would talk to her and all that. But they would have sex several times uh, because... His deal with Robin was he was going to get Caitlin pregnant, and it unfortunately worked. Now, Caitlin's body, of course, has just been ravaged by this lifestyle. And even though she was really good at picking up on the signs, she didn't catch any for this one. And by the time she found out she was pregnant, it was too late to have a quickie abortion. She, she would have had to have the whole surgical one again, and she just couldn't put herself through that. Plus, you know, Robin wouldn't have allowed it. This man had paid to impregnate her and then fulfill his fetish. When Caitlin finally told Stephen that she was pregnant, he went nuts. He was so excited. And he began booking multiple sessions with Caitlin per week. They were just creepy because he'd spend the t a lot of the time just rubbing her belly and talking to it. Then he would rape her and then he'd go back to her belly. And that was his thing. That was his kink. Once Robin saw how much Stephen enjoyed this and how much he was willing to pay for it, he began offering Caitlin pregnancy to folks who were also down with that fetish. And so that kind of became her gig for the next six months or so. The fact that both Caitlin and her daughter survived the pregnancy was a bit of a miracle. Apparently, I'm not a doctor. I don't know much about this. And I, I didn't want to research it for the purposes of the story, but the placenta had become attached to Caitlin's abdominal muscles and the baby was essentially stuck inside of Caitlin. And the only way that this could be fixed was for the doctor to literally go up inside Caitlin and pull the placenta apart from the wall gently. And of course, the doctor that Robin had arranged for was Asian and Caitlin went bananas and would not let him near her. She was throwing a fit. And the nurses kept explaining that, you know, if he doesn't do this, you will die and your baby will die. And she just, she was gone beyond reason. She was just in a panic. And so they had to sedate her. They had to knock her out to be able to perform this pregnancy. When she came to, she found out that everything had gone fine and that she had this new little girl whom she named Ruby. Now, it was a lot easier for Caitlin to bond with Ruby than it was with Amy, even though she says, you know, I love both my children. And admittedly, it was because uh, Ruby was 
white instead of being mixed race. And, you know, Caitlin acknowledges that sounds awful to say, but that's how she reacted. And she's very honest in her book about that. You know, when she brought Ruby home, her mom was furious. Her dad, again, was very excited. But Amy was, oh, oh, she was in love with Ruby. And she wanted to do everything she could to be the best big sister. She would help her mom or grandpa with Ruby every time something needed to be done. Caitlin's mom, though, just ignored Ruby, uh, pretended she didn't exist. Robin actually, you know, celebrated the birth of Ruby, told Caitlin, take some time off, raise your mother. You get maternity leave, I guess, under this harem. He even sent little gifts over for Ruby and things like that. You know, what what a nice guy, huh? She actually ended up getting a year off from working. She learned when she went back to being raped on a daily basis that she couldn't get pregnant anymore. Uh, she she could get pregnant, but she would have miscarriages. And so from that point forward, she never had to have another abortion. Her body would take care of it. When Ruby was five, Caitlin had an experience that really changed her life, really, really affected the direction of her life. She was home alone. Her daughters were with their grandparents. By this point, she had been able to move out and rent a small house. And while she was home alone, there was a knock on her door, and it was one of her clients from the time she was working under Hassan and Zane. And when she opened the door and saw who it was, he kicked in the door, forced her down, and raped her there in the living room. And as he was getting dressed to leave, he said, oh, where have you been? We've missed you so much. Like this was a normal thing. Caitlin just panicked because what if her daughters had been there? There was no guarantee they would have been safe. I mean, Ruby was five. Amy was, I think, nine. Who's to say they wouldn't have been caught up in this? So the fact that they now knew where Caitlin was living and they felt comfortable just showing up to rape her whenever scared the bejesus out of her. And she figured she had to take drastic action at this point. So as we know, Caitlin's got family down in Australia, and she arranged to take a family vacation to Australia and was going to stay with one of her cousins down there. And Caitlin was determined that this would not be another wasted trip to Australia. Previously, all her encounters had been in the Melbourne area. Her cousin did not live near there, so she wasn't worried about running into Harry or any of his goons. When she arrived and got settled in at her cousin's house, the first thing she did was went into her cousin's bedroom. They sat down. They sat down on the bed, and she just opened up to her and told her everything, everything, every gruesome detail. And her cousin believed her. For the first time in her life, Caitlin felt like somebody believed her and somebody was willing to help her. The cousin immediately just like jumped on it and started researching what to do, what paperwork they would need, and all that. And she got in touch with the Australian Catholic Religious Against Trafficking in Humans, or ACRATH. They heard her story and they were like, honey, we're going to do everything we can to help you. But they were also honest. You know, they said, look, it, it's going to be tough to get you a visa. The primary reason is not because of your, you know, that your experience wasn't bad enough or anything like that. It's the politics. If the Australian government grants you a emergency protection visa, they're essentially saying we believe that England cannot protect its own citizens. 
And so they said, you know, we will do everything we can, but understand that is a huge mountain we've got to overcome. And Acrath was great to her. They found her a house of her own so she didn't have to stay with her cousin. The kids had their own rooms. And, you know, obviously Caitlin couldn't work legally, so they said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. So they paid for her rent. They paid for her utilities and did everything they could to help her out. But ultimately, her visa was not approved. Acrath had been correct. It was denied purely for political reasons. She would have to return to England after being in Australia for seven months. But Acrath said, we're not just kicking you back to England. We're going to make sure you get some help. So they put Caitlin in touch with an organization known as the Medallial Trust. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope I am. And this is a charity in England that's devoted to helping the victims of human trafficking. And so Acrath sent all the paperwork they had on Caitlin to them. And when she arrived in England, she was actually greeted by a member of the trust at the airport. After they, she took her kids to her, her parents' house and they drove her to their headquarters so they could start doing their paperwork on it. The first thing they had to do is to see if her situation matched their mission statement because they had created this charity to help people under certain certain circumstances. Um, you know, they they human trafficking goes beyond just the sexual trade, as I've mentioned before. A lot of human trafficking is labor employment type trafficking, kind of what uh, Caitlin experienced uh, with Harry in Australia. You would get a job, you know, even though you didn't have papers in this country, I'll give you a job, I'll give you a place to live, and I'll just take it out of your wages. And eventually your debts become greater than your income. And so you're working for free, you know, at this restaurant or at this factory or whatever. But that's but they weren't focused on that. They were focused more on sexual abuse. So they had kind of 19 factors that they tested people under to see if they met their criteria. Of the 19 factors, Caitlin qualified under 18 of them. The only one that she did not qualify under was she knew her home address. And this was apparently astounding. Nobody's, you know, hit so high in so many categories. So they said, yeah, yeah, um, we're going to do what we can. So the trust turned over or sent in a request to the UK Human Trafficking Center. And a month later, Caitlin, this girl who had spent, at this point, half her life being abused and raped and ignored and misunderstood, received a letter that shocked her. That, I mean, even with what she had been through, she was shocked. The UK Human Trafficking Center said in their letter they were officially acknowledging Caitlin as a victim of human trafficking. And she just broke down in tears. This meant everything to her. Somebody with power finally recognized that she was in trouble and they were willing to help. In fact, her story was so shocking to the center that some of the higher-ups there passed her story along to certain people of influence in the English government. One of the people who heard about her story was Baroness Cox of Queensbury. This noblewoman was known to be a very big social justice warrior. And I say that in the positive way, even though I know it has negative connotations. You know, she would fight for women's rights. She would fight for children's rights. She would fight for immigration rights, all this. Everything she felt was wrong in the world, she would fight. And she was a feisty woman. 
And boy, she went to war on Caitlin's behalf. Like she met with her. She heard all the details, everything she had been through, how the police had ignored her and everything. And she basically said, nope, that ain't happening as long as I'm alive. She made such a fuss about Caitlin and made and screamed at so many of the right people that one day Caitlin got a phone call and she was invited to come to London and tell her story to the House of Lords. Of course, she was, you know, terrified, but also empowered at this invitation. And the, the, the Baroness said, you have to go, but I'm going to be there holding your hand the entire way. And so she shows up, you know, in this highly prestigious governmental body and on the record basically reads this letter she had written out because she was too nervous to, to speak, as I think most of us would be. And we haven't been through what she's been through. But she detailed everything that she had been through, every effort she had gone through to get help. And when she finished, the chamber was dead silent. She said she looked around and there's all these old white men just with their mouths open. They were so shocked. And when she went and sat down, the Baroness grabbed her arm and squeezed it and smiled at her and said, you did good. You did really good. Then they finally, you know, kind of broke out applauding Caitlin. I don't think they broke into actual applause because this was a government function thing. But uh, the members took turns standing up, addressing Caitlin, thanking her for showing up, uh, commenting on how brave and how strong she was and how terribly sorry they were that this was occurring in England. And they promised her that they were going to do everything they could to make sure future victims didn't fall through the cracks like she did. And in fact, her testimony was officially admitted as evidence and was sent to the powers that be that helped draft legislation in the UK. Caitlin was finally freed from the shackles she had worn for so long. I mean, again, half her life. She was now a, a victim. She was a known victim. She had been blessed with this title by the House of Lords and by the, the Center for Human Trafficking. And now the police took her seriously when she called. In fact, when she would move into a new apartment, she would alert the police and they would come by and install like a little panic button that she, so she didn't even have to call the cops if something was going on. She just had to push that button. Uh, doctors and psychologists knew who she were. And so when she would come to visit, they would listen. You know, she no longer felt like this white trash prostitute. She felt like a real person again. But I mean, even today, the threat of these gangs still looms over her and her family. And they have tried to get revenge on her. There's been, as of the writing of her book, there's been at least two incidents where they've tried to break into her house. Fortunately, uh, she's always been with the counsel she's re received from the police and other people. She's made sure to always live in areas that have security system and things like that. So they've never been able to hurt her, but they have made sure that they're, she knows that they're around. And she moves every couple of years now just to make sure they have a hard time keeping track of her. She always walks her daughters to school. She always pick, walks them back from school. She will not let them be alone because she's not taking the risk of them getting kidnapped. She still, she'll be walking down the street, going to the store, and she'll see a taxi drive by, and she'll recognize the driver. Or she'll be walking back from a bakery and she'll see one of her former clients standing at the street corner. And she, she writes in her book that 
even though she knows now she's got the support of so many people, she doesn't know what would happen if one of them told her to get in a taxi. She doesn't know if she has the strength to say no. She works now with the trust to speak at conferences about her experience to help raise awareness of human trafficking. She also kind of meets with people who have survived it. Um, not so much as a counselor, but just as someone who can say, like, I know I've been there and it does get better. She's basically spending the rest of her life to create a world where this situation is no longer ignored. In her book, Caitlin lists all the ways being a sexual slave and a victim of human trafficking has affected her life. And the list goes on for pages. And it's heartbreaking to read. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's awful. Here are just some of the highlights I wanted to share with y'all from her book about what she experiences now on a day-to-day -day life or or what what she, you know, what she's left feeling. She can't stand being touched by anyone other than her daughters. She can't function when she's in a crowd. She's terrified of taxis and refuses to use them. While she's in public, she's on high alert all the time. She's always scanning for exit routes and items that could be used as weapons if she needs to make a, create, a quick getaway. She finds herself disassociating at random times. Like she'll walk into the grocery store, stop shopping, and then all of a sudden she's walking home, having apparently just left all her groceries in the middle of the store. She loses time a lot. Like if she sits down in a chair to read a book or watch TV, she'll find herself staring at the wall, and when she looks at the clock, it's been two hours that are just gone. She has a really, really hard time performing any task that requires any sort of level of dedicated focus. When she goes out, she always wears hoodies or something that she can use to cover her face so people don't recognize her. She no longer sleeps normally. Um, she has to take a very strong prescription just to get to sleep. And even then, she's plagued by night terrors. She feels sick being around people she perceives as good people because she feels like they can see that she what she's been through and that they're judging her. Caitlin obviously suffers from significant anxiety and significant panic attacks to this day. When she was working, she was, you know, kept in these rooms and she was often naked or was wearing very little. So even during the winter months, she wasn't allowed to cover herself up. So she was exposed to the cold so much that her lungs have been permanently damaged by it, and she gets some sort of uh, respiratory infection every winter. She's terrified of the phone. When she gets phone calls, she has a very, very hard time answering because she's terrified of who will be on the other end of the line. There's days where she feels the need to shower multiple times per day, and when she does, she scrapes and washes so hard that she'll actually pull her skin off. She almost can't go to the doctor because she's so terrified by needles and she can't imagine having a man touch her in her private areas whatsoever. Caitlin admits that her memory is poor and she's done the best that she can to piece it together. By her count, she's had, she's been pregnant at least 11 times in her life. Obviously she gave birth to Amy and, and Ruby. Um, but she knows that she's had six abortions and three miscarriages. And she admits that the number could be much higher and she just doesn't remember. You know, she states that right now in her life, she can't imagine the idea of having a relationship. 
She said, you know, even the idea of sharing a bed with another man absolutely terrifies her. And, you know, just thinking about it causes her to have a panic attack. So she thinks, you know, she she's never going to get married. She's going to stay alone the rest of her life. And I mean, who who can blame her after what she's been through? That kind of wraps up Caitlin's story. I, again, know how difficult this was to hear. I mean, it it was it was hell for me to write this and to record it. It's just it's so heartbreaking to imagine someone being in that position for so long and be ignored by so many different people. But again, to me, this is a very important story. I think it's a story that Caitlin would want shared with as many people as possible. I mean, that's why she wrote a book. And you know, what's sad is Caitlin's story is not exceptional. Hers is probably pretty close to standard for what most human trafficking victims experience. Locked in hotel rooms, forced to have sex multiple times a day, never allowed any sort of choice in their life ever. You know, any signs of resistance. Uh, I mean, heck, any signs of confidence even. And they're mercilessly beaten. I mean, these women suffer from broken ribs, broken arms, broken legs, broken hands, broken ankles, broken noses regularly. You know, it's just part of their world. And, And I do want to highlight this very, very strongly. Notice where Caitlin lived, okay? She lived in England. She was trafficked in England. She was trafficked in Australia. This doesn't occur in some third world country. I mean, these are what we think of as, you know, elite countries, I guess, for lack of a better term. And it was being done openly. Neighbors knew what was going on. Her family knew what was going on. Police knew what was going on. But they just let it happen. They didn't stop it. And... I mean, this, again, this is not an exceptional story. I would dare say this is close to an average story, you know, and I've mentioned this before. I know in an episode a few weeks back, but these people hide in plain sight. The more people there are around, the more people you see in an area, the more likely you're going to find evidence of human trafficking. You know, if you're at a bar or a concert or a sporting event or any other major collection, like, you know, a, a political rally or something, if you see a girl that looks a little too young and is dressed a little too inappropriately and maybe has that look like she's had a really rough life, you're probably staring at the victim of human trafficking. Call the police. Call the police. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Okay. At worst, you've wasted some time. But if you're right, Maybe you bring down a human trafficking ring. Or at worst, if you're right, you save that one little girl from a life of hell. So just make the call. You know, don't look the other way. Don't justify it somehow in your mind. Don't think that's somebody else's problem. That's why these groups continue to exist, because nobody thinks that this really happens. And that's the whole reason why we're talking about this today, is so you know that, yes, it happens. And it happens probably near where you live. You have walked by a victim of human trafficking and just don't know it. According to the Polaris Project, which is this nonprofit group in the United States that, you know, fights human trafficking on all levels. In 2020, 17,000 victims were saved from human trafficking rings. Most commonly, these people are forced to work for escort services, pornography production companies, massage parlors spas, hair salons, bars, strip clubs, 
as house cleaners or as outdoor sex workers, aka prostitutes. Most of the victims are recruited from schools, from strip clubs, and most shockingly from the foster care system. Reports of social media recruitment increased 125% from 2019 to 2020 on Facebook. During that same time frame, the efforts increased 95% on Instagram. Okay, so social media is the big recruitment spot now. If you ever see anything that looks close to this reported, not just to Facebook, not just to Instagram, call your local authorities too if it looks like it's a local operation. Probably the roughest statistics of all that the Employers Project offers, 31% of victims were recruited into human trafficking rings by their own family members. So nearly one out of every three women or children that's being victimized is there because someone they're related to put them in that position. 27% of victims said that they were recruited by a significant other, usually a boyfriend or a girlfriend. and Again, again, let's go back to the beginning of the story. How did Caitlin fall into this group? Had had she fallen? She made a phone call because she was looking for work. She was a naive 14-year-old, and she just made one bad decision. And that one bad decision, which honestly, if you've got a 14-year-old or have had a 14-year-old, that sort of bad decision is not really a bad decision among the scope of decisions they make. But that just that one phone call ruined her life. It absolutely, completely changed the trajectory of her life. I mean, this is an absolute plague in our society. It's an infestation. We all live on our little bubbles, so we don't think to look forward or recognize it. We all think it happened somewhere else. But if we would take the time to open our eyes, just think about how much good we could do as a society if we were all looking for evidence of human trafficking. And I'm just as guilty as anyone, you know, like if we go out to dinner, I'm paying more attention to my kids to make sure they're not climbing on the walls or acting like little deviants, you know? If I'm eating a steak, I'm focusing on the steak. I'm not looking at what's going on around me. And I should do better. We should all do better. Uh, We need to be on the lookout because there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Caitlin's out there, and we need to try to save them. If you've made it through this episode, thank you. Thank you. Um, it was hard. I know it wasn't fun. I, you know, try to wrap. We talk about bad things on here, and I try to wrap most of those stories with some degree of levity, but you can't with this. I hope, look, I, I know I'm not Joe Rogan, right? <laughs> I don't have millions of listeners, but I hope and I pray that this episode can help at least one person out there in the world be saved from this. That, that, would, that would mean everything to me. Again, Caitlin's book is called Please Let Me Go. Like I said at the beginning of the show, there's a link in our show notes directly to the book on Amazon if you want to purchase it and read it. I've left out a ton from her book, so if you want to know more, please read the book. I didn't leave stuff out to try to force you to buy the book or anything like that, of course. I mean, I don't make any money off of it, but there's some things in there that are just too hard to talk about. It's it's be prepared because it's much more graphic than this episode was. I have also linked a second book in our show notes called Trafficked Diary of a Sex Slave. Now, the second book is a work of fiction, but it is based upon stories told by survivors of human trafficking. It 
takes a much more watered down view of what goes on, but it's still graphic in its own right. And so if you want to learn more, but you don't think you can stomach reading more of what happened to Caitlin, that may be a good alternative. I want to end this episode with a quote from Caitlin's book that I feel like encapsulates what the victims of human trafficking go through. It's, it's in the book. It's part of her story of her days with Zane. And she makes the comment that, quote, they were ashamed of nothing, but I was ashamed of everything. Uh, again, thank you for listening. It, it means a lot to me. If you know people in your life who you think could or should listen to this episode and you can share it with them, I would appreciate it. And I don't know what else to say. So I'll end this episode how we typically end it. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.